You are listening to Gone But Never Forgotten. Our topics can include, but are not limited to, murder, sexual assault, graphic and gruesome details, and more. These topics are adult in nature and are not meant for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. I think that most people can have empathy with someone that says, woe is me, on some level. I think that most people can understand growing up and feeling as though life was unfair or that life was depressing. Those are generally pretty common feelings, especially when we are children, growing up, and we see other people who perhaps have things that we don't have, or a life that we don't have. On January 18th of 2003, though, two sisters would take those feelings to an entirely different and sadistic level, when they would complete a plot that led to what is believed to have been the first ever matricide in Canada by two sisters. The names in this case are fictional because names are protected under the Youth Criminal Justice Act, but the story is very real. The worst part of the murder that we're about to discuss is that everything was premeditated and the two sisters almost got away with it. Hello. And welcome to episode 55 of Gone But Never Forgotten, The Bathtub Girls. And welcome back to GBNF. And welcome back, Julie. We're happy to have you back after your sabbatical last week. Thank you, Lance. It's good to be back as always. Last week, we covered the case of Peter Woodcock, Canada's youngest serial killer, and what a case that was. As Lance covered, there was a lot of emotion surrounding that case. Small children whose lives were taken and ruined, a man who perhaps science was not ready for yet, and just a lot of awfulness. Yep, and this week we're going to cover children on the other side of the crime. This week we are delving into a case, the only known case in Canada, of two sisters committing matricide. This one is certainly an interesting one. Let's get right into it, shall we? Right off the top of today's episode, we should talk a little bit more about something that Lance mentioned in the intro. The names of the mother and daughters, and for that matter, most of the people in this case, have been changed to protect everyone involved. In Canada, we have what is known as the Youth Criminal Justice Act. The Youth Criminal Justice Act came into effect in Canada on April 1st, 2003, and replaced the Young Offenders Act. The Youth Criminal Justice Act will come into play in this case today in two main areas. The first area is in terms of what Julie said. The act was created in large part to give some measure of protection to offenders under the age of 18. 
The names in this case are aliases that were created by Bob Mitchell, the author of The Class Project, How to Kill a Mother, the true story of Canada's infamous bathtub girls. The second way that the act comes into play in this case was in the sentencing of the guilty parties, but we'll get to all of that a little later. Linda Anderson gave birth to three children in Mississauga, Ontario. Their aliases are Sandra Anderson, Elizabeth or Beth Anderson, and their brother, Bobby Anderson. Sandra was the older sister, and Beth was the younger sister in this case. Unfortunately, very early in the life of the three children, their father abandoned the family, and that left Linda with the job of raising all three children as a single mother. As most anyone can attest, that is not an easy thing to do. For a time, I was a single mom to one child, and that alone was not easy. I cannot even fathom raising three children by myself. There are many women that do that, though, and they deserve a medal of honor for it. Absolutely. I don't even know how my parents raised three of us at the same time, and they were together. So that certainly gets a lot of credit from me. Unfortunately, as often becomes the case, Linda would spiral and suffer from depression, mental health issues, and a dependency on alcohol. The home life of the three women and young son would not get better. Sadly, as many of us have seen far too many times in situations just like this, Linda would latch onto another man who she perhaps would not have started dating under different circumstances. The man, known in the media as Doug, lived with the family and he was incredibly abusive. Doug would abuse Linda, and of course all that did was serve to drive Linda to drink more and more often. Doug would abuse Linda, and of course all that did was serve to drive Linda to drink more and more often. In an interview in 2020, Sandra would say that the home life was absolutely awful. She said that the children believed that things like family dinner, and even dinner itself, was not to be an everyday occurrence, and that dinner was only served on special occasions. Oftentimes, Doug and Linda would leave Sandra and Beth alone to watch their younger brother. Sandra would also go on to explain after her arrest and more in the interview that she was the victim of sexual assault at the hands of someone that was close to the family. She even said that she told a priest at summer Bible camp about the fact that she was being molested when she was 12 years old. The priest told Sandra to confront her alleged abuser and tell him that he needed to stop what he was doing or she was going to tell her mother. Sandra did this and the alleged abuser wasn't afraid and did not stop. Stories like that make me sick. One of the recurring themes on this podcast is obviously that people that do bad things have a tendency to have things in their past that help to make them into the monsters that they later become. It always lends to some reflection and wonder. As always, I will say that that doesn't excuse the actions that we are going to talk about later, but it still makes one feel some sadness and understand a little bit about how we got to where we did. It makes me sick when we hear about lawyers and doctors and priests and people of that nature who had a chance to take a stand and perhaps help someone, but didn't. Of course, one has to realize that I said the word alleged a few times there. 
Nobody truly knows for sure what did or did not happen as that is one person's narrative and nothing was ever proved. But yes, if that is all true, it makes one sick to their stomach. People rise into positions of power and trust and then choose not to serve the people that they are charged with serving. We have seen that a lot. Sandra would also explain that her mom was almost always drunk. She would drive drunk with her children in the car, and the children would go without the necessities of life so that Linda could feed her alcohol addiction. In 2001, Doug would be convicted of drunk driving and domestic abuse. So, you can certainly get a feel for what kind of life these girls were living, regardless of whether some aspects were true or not. There are enough facts to show that these young children were living in some form of hell. After Doug was gone from the family home, the girls would take on even more work around the house because their mom's drinking continued to get worse and worse. These were two young girls that were just in high school and trying to map out their lives. There has been a lot of static about the movie that was made about the bathtub girls called Perfect Sisters, because many felt that the movie made the girls out to be sympathetic characters. But on some level, I think that they were. I really can't disagree with that. By 2002, things were really coming to a head for Sandra and Beth because they started to realize that they were living without some of the things that many of the people that they knew had. All of the money that the family had seemed to be going to Linda's addiction. The girls started to have the belief that they needed to have things like a swimming pool and better clothes so that they would be more popular. They started to see a correlation between their lives not being the way that they wanted and their mother's addiction. I feel like in many ways in stories like this, we start to hate the victim on some level. Seeing just that these girls had a hard life and not focusing on the fact that a lot of the things we know about the family come from the killers themselves. The reality is that Linda was not summed up only by an addiction and mental illness. Linda was working two jobs to support her three children and she was even taking courses in school to better herself and her work. We mentioned in passing as well, but I want to touch again on the fact that Linda was also the victim of abuse by Doug. This was a woman who tried to hold everything together for her family. Sandra, in that same 2020 interview, said as much herself after the fact, but she and her sister did not see those things when they were children. I think that we can all understand that too on a certain level. When we're children, or especially teens, we don't see the big picture. We don't see much past our own little worlds, and sadly that is what the girls started to do. They started to see their mom as a curse instead of the loving mother that she tried to be in spite of everything. Because of those feelings, Beth and Sandra started to search the internet for ways that they could murder their mother and get away with it. They believed that if they could get away with her murder, they could cash in on the life insurance policy that Linda had. They believed that that policy would pay out $133,000 to each of them and their brother. They decided that they would use that money to take a trip to Europe with their friends and to buy a better house. That statement right there alone shows the immaturity of the two of them, I think. It kind of puts things in perspective. 
they wanted to use that money to enhance their popularity. They figured that they could trade their mom in for a payday, essentially. And they did exactly that. Sandra and Beth decided that they were going to drown their mother because they felt that a drowning would fly under the radar because people drown all the time. They assumed that such a death would be attributed to Linda's alcohol problem and that the police may look the other way. After making a plan together, they would tell some of their friends what they were planning to do and their friends encouraged them to do it. Those friends didn't tell other friends, their families, the police, or anyone else. More people who kept their mouths shut. Again, these types of people either decide that what they're told isn't true or they decide to keep their mouth shut. And in this case, it was the latter, as nobody ever came forward, even after the fact. Whoever you are, you should feel just as guilty as these two girls for the murder that took place. You are sick and twisted. If you know about a murder plan, or worse, a murder after the fact, and you don't tell anyone. Around noon on January 18th, 2003, Sandra and Beth started to serve their mom alcohol as they wanted her to get drunk. Linda was an x-ray technician who was unemployed at the time. The girls would also give Linda six Tylenol-3 tablets that contained codeine to ensure that her heart slowed down. They believed that that, combined with the alcohol, would ensure that Linda could not fight back. The intention, of course, was to make the drowning look like an accident. Sandra and Beth would then take Linda into the bathroom where they had filled the tub. Linda was very drunk, and she had a hard time even getting into the tub. To make things worse, the girls clearly tried to make their mom feel like they were doing something nice for her. After they put gloves on, they started to give her a massage in the tub. After doing that for a short while... Sandra would tell her mom to lie on her stomach so that the girls could scrub her back. When Linda obliged, Sandra immediately shoved Linda's head down into the bathwater and did not let go. She held her mother's head underwater for four minutes, and when she removed the pressure, she found Linda to be dead. After they determined that Linda was dead, the girls left the home to meet up with their friends at a nearby restaurant, where they celebrated the fact that they had pulled the crime off. The other purpose for this celebration was, of course, to create a perfect alibi for Sandra and Beth. This dinner celebration occurred around 6.51 p.m., and they did tell their friends that they had killed Linda. Beth and Sandra would then return to the home around 10.30 p.m., and they immediately called 911. They told the 911 operator that they had left the house around 6 p.m. and that Linda was drunk and preparing a bath for herself. After an investigation, the police found that the situation was suspicious, but they did not find any evidence of foul play, so the death of Linda was ruled to be accidental by drowning. Toxicology screens would show that Linda had five times the legal alcohol level for driving and three times the safe level of codeine in her blood at the time of death. After Linda's death, Sandra and Beth lived with their aunt while their now three-year-old brother lived with other members of the family. Manulife, the insurance company for Linda, paid out $67,000 in trust to their brother, while the girls received $133,674.90 between them. 
And so, the two girls had seemingly pulled off the perfect crime. However, something else that is familiar happened. If you're a true crime fan, you know that oftentimes people do not know how to keep their mouths shut, even when they're pretty much in the clear. Well, this was one of those cases. About a year after the murder, one of the girls told a male friend what they had done. Thankfully, and finally, someone did something. He went to the police and told them that he was at a party with the girls and one of them had actually told him that they had killed Linda. The police would gear up a car so that it could record audio and video and they gave it to this friend. He would talk with the girls about the details of the murder for about a month and that would lead to the arrest of Sandra and Beth. The girls would be arrested on January 21st, 2004 almost exactly one year after the murder of Linda, and they were placed in separate correctional centers. Later on, they would be placed under house arrest, and both sisters would admit and confess to the murder. A computer was also taken as evidence in the case, and chat messages were found between the girls and others that laid out the plans and the preparations for the murder, as well as the research histories that would show that the girls had extensively researched how to kill Linda. The girls had also looked up how the mixture of alcohol and Tylenol 3s would affect a person. The trial would begin in November of 2005, and both girls were found guilty of first-degree murder. Sentencing would take place in June of 2006, and the girls were sentenced to 10 years for first-degree murder, as it was obvious that the murder was premeditated. That was the maximum sentence that could be doled out to the girls as they were tried as juveniles and not as adults. If Sandra and Beth were tried as adults, that verdict would have carried with a mandatory life sentence. The 10 years that they were given would include 6 years in custody and 4 years of community supervision, meaning constant contact with parole officers. While the sisters were incarcerated in prison, they were forbidden from communicating with one another. In handing out the sentence, Justice Duncan would say that the girls, quote, suffered a level of poverty that was not in keeping with their mom's relatively good income. The home atmosphere was depressing and degrading, unquote. Duncan would also say that the girls recognized that their mom wasn't there for them, but didn't recognize that she was working double shifts to provide what little that they had for them. He said that, Quote, they saw her as a passed out drunk, not an exhausted mother trying to cope and taking comfort in alcohol, unquote. The prosecution wanted to collect the insurance money that the girls had received as it was a product of a crime. They wanted to turn that money over to the younger brother. It's unclear what happened with the money, but in 2006, all that was left of the payout to the sisters was about $46,500. As we have talked about in the past, the goal of youth sentences in situations like this is to rehabilitate criminals and to grant the convicted a second chance at life on the outside. We have talked about this many different times, most notably in the case of Jasmine Richardson. I've long said that I'm a believer in this practice. I don't know if there are statistics that prove that this is successful or not, and have never been able to find anything like that, but I do believe that there are cases where this is deserved. 
I will state that I believe that this is one of those cases, and I do expect to catch a little bit of flack for that stance, like I usually do. Listen, we've all been teenagers. Most of us can say that at one time or another, we hated our parents. I certainly can anyways. Now, obviously I did not murder my parents, and I did not carry out anything like this. But I think that when we are young, and yes, to me 15 and 16 years of age is still young, we're capable of making mistakes that are small and mistakes that are monumental. I'm sure that Julie and I will get into this more in our reaction episode, as this is not the place for that, but I do believe that these girls deserved a chance to live a life still, and a chance to reverse the curse, so to speak, that their crime caused. The girls would end up serving much less than even the six years in prison that they were given. Sandra, the older sister, was released from prison to a halfway house in 2009 after only three years in prison, and Beth was released in 2010 under federal parole. The real question, which Lance just alluded to, is whether the two of them being free from their crime is a rehabilitation victory for them or a sign that the justice system in Canada is broken. It has been reported now that Sandra has graduated university with the intention to become a scientist, and Beth has married and is now a mom herself. She also has graduated, her, from law school. The story has been covered in the aforementioned book by Bob Mitchell and in the movie that we mentioned as well. We will, of course, not be releasing the names of these girls or any other criminals that are protected under the Act, as we do believe that part of allowing people a second chance is certainly not contributing to harassment that they no doubt have and will face. Some may say that they're getting what they deserve, but that is legally incorrect in this country. All of that to say that the death of Linda was a tragedy. She did not deserve the things that were done to her. Linda was indeed a single mom who struggled with addiction and mental health issues and was at the end of the day a single mom who tried as hard as she possibly could to ensure that her family had a roof over their heads and had whatever she could provide. If you're out there and Linda's story hits you in the feels, maybe you are that person who is struggling to make ends meet and is struggling with addiction of any kind. Know that you are loved and that it is okay to not try to defeat things like this on your own. If you are an adult, please call to talk to a mental health professional one-on-one at 1-866-585-0445 or text wellness to 741-741. You can also call Talk Suicide Canada at one 833 456-4566, and that support is available 24 hours a day. If you are a young adult who perhaps feels like you are in a situation like Sandra and Beth were, where you are running out of options or are the victim of abuse of any kind, first of all, call the police or call Children's Aid. You can also call Kids Help Phone at 1-800-668-6868 or text CONNECT to 686868. Even though it's called Kids Help Phone, this service is available to all Canadians between the ages of 5 and 29 
who need confidential and anonymous care. As a youth, you can talk to a mental health professional at 1-866-585-0445 or text WELLNESS to 686868. It is important to know that you are never alone and that there are always so many ways that you can reach out for help. It can be incredibly scary to pick up a phone and ask for help of any kind. This certainly is not strictly for situations like the one that we talked about today. We live in a world where we tend to think that we need to suffer in silence or where we think that we are the only ones that are going through what we're going through. Know that that is not the truth. You are not and do not have to ever be alone. People care. People love you. People are available and willing to help. All you need to do is reach out for that help. And that is where we will leave this episode. As always, you can join us over on Patreon for our reaction video. I can already tell that Lance is raring to go on this one. To watch each and every one of our reaction videos, you simply need to sign up on any level as a patron to Gone But Never Forgotten at patreon.com slash gbnfpodcast. The tiers start at less than a cup of coffee per month, and every patron we get is greatly appreciated and given so many great perks. So, if you love the show, come check us out on Patreon. And we will see you back here next week, right here, wherever you are listening, for another episode of Gone But Never Forgotten. Thank you for listening, and be better.